0: This morning we're going to continue to look in Revelation 21 and 22. So if you've been wondering why I've just been reading the same verses the last several weeks it's because we've just focused on those. So now we're going to move forward and I'm going to read to you the last part of chapter 21 and then read the first five verses of chapter 22. But before I do that, I want us to just do a little bit of review. So hopefully these things are getting further and further into your bones. Hopefully they're getting deep down in. So the first thing I want to do is remind you of our four preliminary principles. Because without these four, we will, be, we will set a course to not understand and interpret Revelation rightly. So we got to nail down these four principles. And actually, I hope that as we've gone through the book of Revelation, you've realized that these principles make a difference. They really do. So here's principle number one that we started the year with. God always completes what he starts. Remember that? Revelation is not a tack-on at the end of the story. Revelation is the completion of the four-part story. So if we want to understand Revelation, we got to remember the beginning. we got to remember creation. Hopefully that will be even more evident today. Second principle is this. We need to think about time the way that God does. When you read the New Testament, you find that the last days started with the coming of Christ. So, Revelation is not a book that begins to tell us about the last days. Revelation is a book that summarizes all that has been going on since the coming of Christ and summarizing what will happen until his return. So that the book of Revelation is all about the coming of Christ and his return. Third, we should have a humble posture when we come to Revelation. Revelation is not a code book. There are things that we know. There are things that we don't. Revelation is not a code book. Revelation is a picture book. It's meant to give us images that are communicating to us the gospel so that God would reach us at the deepest possible level. Our minds, our wills, our actions would all be affected by thinking about these images that he gives us in the book of Revelation. Fourth and finally, the fourth preliminary principle is this. Jesus actually accomplished something in his death and resurrection. When the Bible says you will call his name Jesus, it doesn't say, for he will make salvation possible. It doesn't say that he would make you savable. It says, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, in his death and resurrection, he actually accomplished something, which not only meant that all of his people would come to him, it meant that in principle, he defeated death and sin and and Satan himself through his death and resurrection. Now, the reason why that's so important is this. If we don't think that Jesus actually accomplished something, we are going to think that evil and darkness and wickedness and Satan has a lot more power than he actually does. And we're going to end up thinking that maybe we should pay more attention to darkness and evil in the world rather than what Revelation is doing, which is? showing us the unfolding of what Christ has accomplished so that we recognize that evil is going to grow, but it's limited. It will never and can never overtake the work of the gospel in the church because of Christ, ever. So those are our preliminary principles. And to the extent that you've wrestled with those and landed, to that extent, Revelation probably will make more and more sense to you. Now, let's do the next thing. We've been spending several weeks in 21 and 22. So, I want to review that as well. Because I want you to hopefully feel the cumulative effect of this. So, when we started Revelation 21 and 22, we started with the essence of these chapters. The essence of our forever future. And the essence of our forever future is this. Heaven is coming down. Earth and heaven will be reunited. The other aspect of the essence of our forever future is that we will be with God. His presence will permeate everything. The the promise of Scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people, that's mentioned in the first three, four verses of chapter 21, will be literally true. In other words, the way God set up the world, Genesis 1 and 2, will be the way that we will live forever. And our rebellion can't even stop it. Satan can't even stop it. And that's the essence of our forever future. Without that, nothing else that we talk about ever matters. That's why we started there. Last week, we looked at this, these two things. We tried to answer the question, well, what does it mean when God says we're gonna, he's going to make all things new? And hope. Those are the two things we looked at last week. Hope. What does it mean that God will make all things new? And hope. Now, the reason why I'm reviewing those in part is this. Most of us have grown up being taught or most of us have grown up hearing or reading that um, the world's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And right before things get really, really bad, we're going to get raptured out of here, and we're going to have this embodied existence somewhere out there, and that Jesus is going to come back and drop justice bombs and destroy the earth and start over. And it's from that framework that all the debates begin. But the essence of that framework is this. We end up focusing far more on what we think is happening in the world that's bad because we got to prep for the rapture. And we got to get ready to get out of this place. And the great hope is to get out of here. And heaven is like up there somewhere. And I hope that just reviewing that, you can see that what we've been talking about is a lot different. Heaven is coming down. I can't get, go off on this, can I? Because we're not going to be here all day. That's the reason why I need to review. Because most of us have grown up with a framework that is absolutely messed up. It's been around in our country for about 100 years. That's it. But it has dominated the United States and the church in the United States. Not so much everywhere else in the world. But, but for us, it's dominated what we think. So I'm trying to expand your horizons with what the church has thought for 2,000 years about this book. That leads us to 21 and 22 this morning. Listen to this. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. This, beloved, is the word of God. It is a portion of a letter from home. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates uh, 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his, with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth sisyphras, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass." They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. How's that sound for your future? Not, not too bad, right? Let's, let's pray, if you would. Let's pray together. Lord, overwhelm us with a sense of your presence and your glory and fresh Fresh, a fresh sense that what you say really is good news. And Lord, help us to crave the good news and keep us from coming to you, always looking for new methods or techniques or little tricks to be more self-dependent. Keep us from that. But work into us a greater desire to depend on you and what you say. That you might get all glory. Now and forever. Amen. This is where we're going this morning. We're going to try to answer this question. Finally, we get to this point. We're going to answer this question today or start to answer it. <clears throat> what is heaven really like? We're going to try to answer that question. What is heaven really like? And secondly, we're going to talk about the Lamb. So that's where we're going today. Has everybody got that? Is that clear? What is heaven really like? And then we're going to talk about the lamb. Before we jump into that, answering that question, we're going to start where we ended last week. Do you remember last week we ended talking about hope? Do you remember this? If you weren't here, don't worry. I'm not going to rehash all of it. Here's a brief glimpse. Do you remember hope? Do you remember how we are all creatures of hope and that what we think about the future profoundly affects our now? Do you remember us talk about that a little bit? Do you remember that we thought through an illustration together of two people that had a job and the job was really, really boring and the job required you to work 55 hours a week and the, did I say the job was boring? Okay, whatever is in your mind, that, it's that job. It's really, really boring. You might be thinking about your own job. And after working for a year, one worker would receive $40,000 and the other worker would receive $5 million. And the guy that receives $40,000 after a year's worth of work of doing a boring job, you remember that roughly by week four or maybe two if it were me, starts saying, you know, this is horrible. This is a terrible job. This is boring. The people I work with smell. I don't like them. I don't like the community here. My boss is a jerk. The one who gets five million after working for a year of a really boring job that works 55 hours a week is excited about going to work, right? Because of his hope. His hope is oh, I'm going to get five million after doing this really boring job. For one year, I'm going to be set. Hope. Dramatically and profoundly affects our present. And that means that if the, we have the hope of God, it will produce three things in us. First one is this. Do you remember this? If we have the hope that God talks about in Revelation 21 and 22, it will produce in us this. Sacrifice will be normal. Second, we will be able to endure trials that we can't even imagine. Remember us walking through this? All the things that you didn't think would happen in your life when you were 12 and 15 and 20 and 35 and 50 and 60 and 75? Remember all those things? The things that you didn't expect to happen at all, the trials that to you at that young age were unimaginable, the only way for you to the only way for you to endure trials that are unimaginable is if you have the hope that God talks about in 21 and 22. And third, the third thing that, it, that this hope produces in us is the reality that we can enjoy life now. And remember, you got to hold all these three things together. You don't get to pick one of the three. You don't get to pick, well, I have this hope in the future, so I'm just going to enjoy everything. Well, it won't last long because you're going to face trials that you haven't imagined. Because those three things are exactly what Christ's life was like. Sacrifice was a normal part of his life, wasn't it? Trials that he couldn't imagine was the thing of his life. And he enjoyed life. And if we're going to be more like Christ, then we're going to live lives of sacrifice. We're going to live lives of enduring. and We're going to live lives enjoying what God has given us. So how in the world can we get more in this hope? How in the world can we think more about this hope? How in the world can this hope be clearer to us so that those three things are produced in us? Because there's no way that we can take those as a checklist and be just like, you know what? I'm just gonna moralize this and make myself happier this week. It won't work. I'm just gonna grit out this trial and make it, I'm just gonna get to, it It won't work you'll finally run into a trial that will shut you down. And living a life of sacrifice, better not turn that into a moralism. Because what will happen is you end up doing something so that you get the glory. So how do we get a clearer sense of this hope? Well, let's answer our question. What is heaven like? And let's look at 21 and 22 together to try to figure this out. What is heaven really like? Well, here's the first thing. We get to see something of the dimensions of heaven. Look how it starts. The angel comes to John, which means he's coming to us too. The angel comes to John and says, hey, John, come here. I want to show you something. Did you notice that in verse 9 of chapter 21? Look at it. It's right there for you to see. And he says, John, come here. I want to show you something. Meaning what he's going to show John, he's going to show us. So that we can have another image to think about. Another image to be infused with. John, look at this. He takes us up to a high mountain, and what does he show John? Jerusalem coming down. Isn't that amazing? We get to see Jerusalem coming down, and here it's presented as a bride. Hmm, Jerusalem as a bride, a city, all these strange metaphors God's putting together, right? We get to imagine this together. John, look at, the, look at the glory of this. It is radiant. It is like a most amazing jewel. John, check it out. People of God, think about it. The angel also pulls out this measuring stick and begins to measure, and he tells us that the length and the width and the height are all the same, which is meant to communicate to us that it's four square. It is a cube, meaning it is perfect. It is perfectly shaped. Those of you that know your Bibles a little bit more might remember that Solomon's temple in the Holy of Holies was a cube. It's communicating the same thing except this is bigger. This is better. He's wanting us to see this perfection that is radiant with glory and radiant with majesty. And he begins to say, guess what, John? There are 12 foundations and and there are 12 walls. And if you look back at verse 14 through 16, you'll find out that on those foundations and on the walls were inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the names of the 12 apostles. Did you see that? What the angel is showing us, what God wants us to see in this image, is that he has always had one people. Take it in. Those that were in the Old Testament were tied to the tribes, and God is saying, these are my people, and they have entrance into heaven. They make up the essence of the city. And those that are connected to the apostles' teaching and doctrine, they're my people, so that believers before Christ, who believed in the Savior to come, and us who live after Christ, who look back to who He is and see Him as the Savior, are one people, So that God has had one plan that he has been executing from the foundation of the world. He doesn't have a plan for the Old Testament people and a plan for the New Testament. They're one. They make up the foundations and the wall of this thing. Do you get it? God's got one plan and one people, one gospel, one story. Then... He begins to talk about these gates that they are formed uh, uh, as if they were one pearl. And we'll find out in a little bit that, they, that these gates are never closed. And then he adds at the end of 21, all of these stones and precious stones. Did you catch it as I read them? There were 12 of them. I don't remember them all. Nor, nor should we at this, in this space go through every one. But here's the point. These stones are meant to display all the range of color so that whether it's yellow or red or blue or green or purple or brown, all of these stones have a range of color so that what is happening is that as John sees this Jerusalem coming down, the people of God there, that he is also recognizing that the stones are all present in full array of color because the purpose of a stone is to take light and expand it and magnify it and make it even more beautiful. This is supposed to take our breath away. This is supposed to be like, whoa, this is my forever future? that I'm going to be part of this city, this new city that's coming down, and I'm going to be arrayed and display the light and glory of God? Yes. That's just the dimensions. That's just a little glimpse of what it is. Then let's let's look next at the people that are described, that make up this city. Verse 8 of chapter 21 tells us that, There are some people who will no longer be present. I didn't read it. I'm happy to. But go back and read verse 8 of chapter 21. Those that are cowardly all the way down to the sexually immoral will not be there anymore. Beloved, heaven is made up of God's people and God's people alone. What this is communicating to you and to me is this. What Jesus has done actually pays the penalty for these things that are outlined in verse 8. It's real. Jesus has paid for our sexual immorality. It's not that God's people are, it's not that the bad people are out and the good people are in, is it? It's that their people have been paid for. And there are others who want nothing to do with Jesus and would rather live in their own rights and live by their own resume. And God is telling us through John, yeah, when when this happens, the people who really want to live without Christ get an eternity without Christ. Jesus has paid for all of our sins for those who will have him. Beloved, that's you. That's me. This is not anybody outside of this room to start with unless you in here are not ever cowardly or sexually immoral or a liar. Really? Jesus has paid it all. And we start talking about who makes up this place. It's not for those who don't want Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't want Christ, take him. Because if you don't it'll be an eternity without him as one man has said hell itself is a monument to self-sufficiency you don't want that on the other side he tells us who is there look at verse 24 and 26 this is amazing Look at verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Who is going to make up this city? Can you see what he's getting at there with 24 and 26? People from every tongue and tribe and nation and people group are gonna make up this city, are gonna make up the bride of Christ. Do you see it? He's talking about a global salvation. That Jesus is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And when it talks about the kings bringing the glory of the nations into heaven, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the uniqueness of the nations and the uniqueness of cultures that show the image of God in ways that other cultures don't. So that every culture will be brought into this place. And every culture images collectively who God is. And we need all of those expressions to understand fully who God is. You know what happened? Since the fall, since the rebellion, since we rebelled against God, Differences in cultures are often used as weapons and barriers. Have you noticed that? This is talking about the day in which the uniquenesses of all the cultures will remain unique and will remain distinctive. And they will be welcomed. And they will be celebrated. And they will belong. The problem is that we live in a broken world. And the problem is that when we oftentimes recognize differences in other cultures, we see that as a barrier to them or them to us rather than something to be celebrated, rather than something to be explored and understood. I recently watched a family-friendly movie called McFarlane. It's the story of a coach who continued to lose his job because he continued to lose his temper. And he ended up moving to McFarland, California. Got a job at a high school. Kevin Costner was the lead on the role, by the way, if you're familiar with him. This movie came out five or six years ago, I think. And he ended up being the cross-country coach. I won't spoil all the ending for you. But he ended up being a cross country coach and living in a vast majority Hispanic community. And part of the story was that he had to learn the assumptions that he had about different cultures and different people groups that he hadn't thought about before. He had to recognize that he had some assumptions about other peoples and other cultures that weren't exactly fair or good. They were more like barriers, weapons. What I mean is, there was a time in the movie in which he was talking to his cross-country team and describing for them, you know, when we run a race and when we compete, we want the lowest time possible. We want to be the fastest, you know, have the lowest time because that's how we get points. And he said, it's kind of like golf. And all the guys looked at him and said, coach, there's no golf course around here. We've never seen golf in our lives. There was another time in the movie in which he had to come to grips with, in this Hispanic community, there were a group of guys that would ride around at night, low and slow. And he assumed that they were a gang. They weren't at all. They were a car club. End up saving his daughter's life. I won't spoil the story, the end of the story. The point is, part, part of the movie was communicating how we all have assumptions about different cultures. And because of sin, we have a tendency to think that those differences are barriers. And we don't even recognize, oftentimes, our assumptions about our own culture and how that connects with others and that others have a different culture. So here's the question of application. When you look at differences in cultures, do you live as if they're barriers? Do you? Are you willing to recognize some of your own assumptions? Am I? And that understanding different cultures and different differences that they may have is Actually, a way that we can grow to understand the image of God? Because the day is coming in which all those cultures are going to bring all of their glory of their culture into heaven itself, and we're going to celebrate it all. And collectively, we will display the glory of God through the image of all cultures. In other words, the day is coming. In which differences will no longer be barriers. They'll be celebrated. And they'll all belong. Well, after the dimensions and talking about the people that will make up this city. To go even into greater detail, John gives us a description. Actually, he starts off by describing things, if you will, Negatively, What's heaven like? Well, here's what's not going to be there. You ever notice that when you read 21 and 22? How would you like to live your life and do your job where you defined everything negatively? Would that, would that, how'd that work? Would that work for you? My guess is it wasn't. It wouldn't. But this is oftentimes how God tries to communicate something to us that is so glorious that we don't even understand how great it is. But he starts off by saying, well, it's not going to be this and this. And here's a list for you. In chapter 21, verse 4, in heaven, every tear gone. No more tears. No more tears of sorrow. No death, verse 4, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Verse 22 of chapter 21, there's no temple. Verse 23, there's no need of the sun, there's no need of the moon. Verse 25, there's no night. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter. No one detestable, nothing false. Chapter 22, verse 3. Nothing accursed. Verse 5 of chapter 22. No night, no light of a lamp, no sun. And then to bring us all the way back around to chapter 21, verse 1. There's no sea. Remember? there's No chaos. Get ready for this. There will be no drama. I'm serious. How about living in a world with no drama? I'll I'll take it. Verse 25 the gates to this place will never be closed. On the positive side of the description, here it is God's presence is everywhere, everywhere. The Holy of Holies has now become the whole earth. And all of his people will be there, imaging him, glorifying him. One more thing before we summarize. Did you notice in chapter 22? The angel comes back to John again and says, Hey, John, I got something else I want to show you, which means that's us. I got something else you got to see. Look how 22 begins. The angel comes and says, Hey, John, look at this city. Look at what is in the middle of this city. There is a river of life. See that? Going down through the middle main street heaven is going to be the river of life. And then on top of that, on either side of the river, is what? The tree of life. You ever heard of the tree of life before? Where did you hear first? Where did you first hear about that? Genesis 1 and 2. God always completes what he starts. Here we get the tree of life and the river of life together because God is communicating to us that we will have all the the sustenance that we need. The tree of life will yield its fruit. Did you read it? Each month, the 12 different kinds of fruit, it will yield it so that you and I have everything that we need to eat. And the river of life We have everything that we need to drink so that we are in this place that is full of God, no curse, no effects of the curse. We get God and his people forever and ever. We have all the food that we need. We have all the water that we could ever imagine, and we will live forever growing, expanding, new creating, everything. Everything will be as God intended in the beginning. Still sound pretty good to you? Do you remember the psalms? Um, That was a bad question. Do you remember the psalm that starts out, God is our refuge and strength? Do you remember that? Do you remember the verse in there? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. He is in the midst of her. And she will not be moved. Remember that from Psalm 46? Here it is in its literal fulfillment. You know who that city is in Psalm 46? The one that's coming down out of heaven. Do you know who that city is? You and me, believers. God is in the midst of us, and we will not be moved. Looking forward to that? I am. Forever and ever and ever we will grow. There'll be no atrophy. There'll be no decline, no decay. Just forward, onward with God and his people. The great garden of Genesis 1 and 2 has become the city, which is kind of like what has happened across the world the last 2,000 years and more. And that city is also a bride. In other words, God is reasserting creation. And he is saying it will be creation without hindrance. It will be creation without curse. It will be wholeness that you can never imagine. It will be all that God has intended. Well, that leads us to this. That's a little bit of what heaven will be like. Now, let's look at the Lamb. Did you notice that we read these chapters, and if you go back and read them, the Lamb is mentioned at least seven times. Maybe more, but I counted seven. And I don't always count accurately, so check me. Why? Why? If we have the new heavens and the new earth, why, if heaven has come down, why, if God is all in all, why do we still have Jesus described as the Lamb? Why? Seven times. Why is Jesus still described as the Lamb? Do you know the answer? Do you get it? There's only one entrance into this city. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there will never be a time in our forever future where we aren't thinking about what Jesus has done. Our only hope in this life and in the world to come is that we believe in the Lamb that was slain. We will, beloved, we will never get over the gospel. We will never get over the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. We will never get beyond his perfect life ever. So please help me when I try to move beyond Jesus. Please help me when I think that growth is, well, Jesus did this, now it's time for me to get busy and do these five things. Please help me to stop living that way The Lamb is all the glory. Let me make that more specific. Do you know why there's no need of the sun or lamp? Because the day that Jesus died, the greatest darkness ever came over him so that me and you would get eternal light. The reason why these nations will be brought in with all of their cultural distinctives so that collectively we will all reflect the image of the triune God is because he tore down the middle wall of separation and made the two one. Do you remember that? Do you know why we will see God's face? Remember that in verse 5, chapter 22? Do you know why we're going to see God's face? Because he, Jesus, was forsaken so that we would only get the face of God forever and ever. Do you know why we get the tree of life? Because he was willing to die. He was willing to endure the tree of death so that we would have this life forever. Do you know why we get the river of life? Because he was thirsty and drank horrifically sour vinegar. Beloved, this is our future. Christ will be the center of everything because of what he has accomplished and what he's done. And our God will be all in all.